<laughs> this technology stuff is hilarious. Well, hello uh, to everybody. Uh, welcome to live uh, Instagram live. I'm sure you've been on one before, but this is the first one you've been on with us too. So welcome. Uh, I have a guest today, uh, Christy Lauren Adams, author of Parable of the Brown Girl. How are you doing today? I'm doing really good. Like yeah. today. I don't know if yesterday or day every day is different. We're gonna hold on to today's goodness as long as we (laughs) how are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Um obviously, you know, there's a lot going on in the in the media. Uh it's a unique experience for us uh black people. But um I think I'm navigating through it through it okay for now. But I, I was bad a few weeks ago when I the initial stuff with George Floyd was a lot for me. Yeah, so it was like, man, like this is getting so like it's been here, but it was really blatant at that point. So it was like, all right, what are we? Doing? Yeah, yeah. Is it? I, I hate to say that it's calmed down. I hate that. You right. know what I mean? I hate that phrase. Like, oh, it's calmed down. I, I'm trying to think of something else to say. You know, other than that. Um, and then at the same time, I'm trying not to look over my shoulder every five seconds. You know, right? Um, for something else to happen. Um, which has, which has been the case. Mm-hmm. So, right. It's a, it's a unique thing. And I think that's something that we'll get into. So tonight, uh, our discussion is going to center protecting black girls and boys. So as I mentioned, Christy is the author of parable of the Brown girl. And I've had my recent release whole brother debunking the Mr. Break the black family. So there's some gender specifics there in terms of our focus. And I thought that it'd be good to have kind of a communal discussion on, on both aspects. So I'll start. I got this question quite a bit and it annoyed me, but I'm going to see how you, how you react to it. Okay. But uh, why a book specifically on Brown and or, or black girls? Why that specific? Well, honestly, um, it's not like I thought about writing this book and some somebody approached me in a publishing company about writing and um, about writing in general. And I didn't know what to write about. Um, and so it took me some time to, to think it through. And I always say that because I don't ever want people to think that I was like, okay, I'll write about black girls, you know, like that it came to me. It just, it didn't, it took some time for it to organically yeah. happen. Um, but uh, I always say that, you know, I was thinking about it and and I remembered this phrase when my pastor came out with his first book and uh, he was like, you need to write a book, you know? And I was like, this was years ago. And I was like, I don't, I don't have anything to write about. And he was like, you write about what you know. And I remember telling him like, I don't, I don't know much, you know? And he was like, you know stuff, you know? And um, so I thought about that more and more. And then I was like, I know what it is to be a black woman, right? I know what it means to be a black girl. I don't know everything about it, but I did right. know that. And at the time I was working with a lot of young black girls. Um, and I just remember thinking how amazing these young women were. Everywhere that I went in my career, you know, I lived in LA for a little while. I lived in DC. I worked at Georgetown for a while. Um, every space that I was in in my career, you know, there's never been a time where I haven't um, come across some extraordinary uh, young black girl um, and and changed my life, you know, uh, for the better. And but I always felt like their lives were always so far on the margins that nobody, you know, paid, was paying much attention. Mm-hmm. And um, 
I always felt like that was unfortunate because I always felt like, you know, if people were to experience what I was experiencing from my relationship with them, then um, their lives would be changed too, you know? Yeah. So it really started off on like a basic, you know, that, that basic level where I was like, you know what, if I ever had a platform, I said to myself, um, I would, I would try to use that to, to share stories of these, of these young girls. And that's mm -hmm. really where it started. Uh, yeah. It wasn't until as time went on with writing or bef actually before writing, even just trying to get it published because the first publishing company rejected the the notion, right? They, they wanted me to write about all girls. And, um, <laughs> and I was like, well, y'all approach me, you know? <laughs> um, and they were like, right. well, you can write about like a chapter about, you know, you can put them into the chapters and write about other. And I was like, you're proving my point that these girls not are are not only marginalized in society in general, you know, just from what we see, but also just in a very basic level. Every time they we, we mention black girls, they have to share the share the platform, you know. Right. Um, they just can't be centered. So it, my passion for that grew more and more. Yeah, that's yeah. good. And it's funny. Well, it's not funny. It's 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 unfortunate actually that I had a similar you know experience. Yeah. In that, so I was. I was at the time I was working in predominantly white evangelical higher ed. Okay. Um, diversity work, helping them think through basically how to not be racist. And I, you know, I was like, okay, going to work on a book next. And my first thought was obviously to just do a diversity book. Um, right. To then sell, you know, basically to help majority culture white people understand these dynamics. Um, okay. And that's where I was. But then, uh, time went on and my focus kind of shifted and I was like, you know, I can say I got a little frustrated with the whole racial reconciliation conversations because uh -huh. years before George Floyd. So I was like, well, you know, I want to uh, do something that's black specific. Um, my, my attention has kind of shifted because once again, as a black man, I'm like, well, I have unique experience, too, that I'm constantly explaining uh, but I think what would it be like to address some of these unique things for black people? Because yeah. I saw time and time again that uh, black people in white evangelical spaces a lot of times get overwhelmed with translating for white people that they don't, you know, aren't able to put attention on more black things um, and not to pit one against the other, but that's just a dynamic I saw. So, from that space, I said, you know, I still want to do something that's black specific as well. And yeah. some of the pushback I got was the first agent that I spoke with um, when I at the time I was saying, you know, it, it's black male focused. That's a primarily primary readership. But I'll just be honest. I know that black women are going to be interested in this, too, just by virtue of the relationship. Um, and he said that my first agent told me um, there's no market for that book because black men don't read books. Was so, that what? Uh, the, the first agent told me that there's mm -hmm. no market for the book because black men don't read books. So I, I was just, I was thinking through it like, okay, while there's some level to this that I can wrestle with, I do think that that um, is a, an overgeneralization to dismiss something that is very needed and timely. So you know, here we are, still was able to, you know, get it published and so on and so forth. But I think um, 
I don't know why this is the case. Maybe you can speak to it, but there's always pushback when you center the black experience in general for some reason. In many cases, for whatever reason, when you center the black experience, there's pushback on that. And I was wondering why, why do you think that's the case? We both had that experience where it's like, oh, you know, just all yeah. lives matter the situation. Why do you think that is? People get offended. They get offended yeah. when you say black, you know what right. I mean? And when you say black and black only. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember I was on Twitter, forgot um, Netta, um, that was mm-hmm. one of the um, Black Lives Matter activists. Netta had said, um, she, she had put some tweet up there about, you know, black women, something, something, something. And then somebody, you know, went out of their way to say, well, all women, right? And mm-hmm. she was like, I said black. Right. <laughs> you know? and, and right. That was a few years ago. Um, and that sticks with me because people, for some reason, they, they, there's something that rises up within them, non-black people particularly, right? When mm-hmm. you center blackness. Mm-hmm. I don't understand yeah. it. For the life of me, I do not get it. Right. You know, especially because um, okay. uh, I was just gonna say, there's like it just seems like a just a resentment, right? Yeah, and I was just gonna add, it's it's weird when you consider the fact that here in America, historically, white people and whiteness has been centered the majority of the time. So it's like, man, like you can't let nobody get no shine. Like just relax, you know? <laughs> you right. Know, there, there should be spaces where it doesn't have to be about. Uh, white culture or even white comfort, you know, I think right. that uh, we have to be intentional about those spaces and not get so immersed in creating proximity to whiteness or, or translating. So, yeah. So I just just wanted to start there with the context for, okay, yeah, we chose to focus on, you know, black specific things, which in many cases, depending on who you're talking to, would be advised against. Right. A lot of times authors are advised to, well, you know, speak to the general public, you know, make it more palatable. And I think for me, that would have taken away from the content. How about you? Right. That is the equivalent of, you know, I was talking about because you talked about working in a predominantly uh, white higher higher ed spaces. Mm-hmm. Right. And I've been in that. Um, and also now being at a predominantly white boarding school. Mm-hmm. But it's the equivalent of. Uh, there, there was a we were in our 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 dorm spaces because we have to live on campus, and uh, there are these you know dorm parents that are in the building that I'm in, um, and it's interesting because it's all white women, right? And then there mm-hmm. was uh, myself and another black woman. Well, a friend of mine who's a black colleague uh, was thinking about moving in there. Well, someone had made the comment that well, all then all the black women will be will be in the same building. And a white woman made that comment. All black women will be in the same building and basically wanting us to share, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, like, that we need to spread out. Yeah. Um, that burden, <laughs> that burden right. is always placed on us. Right. I don't think she realized mm-hmm. how ignorant that sounded. For right. a second though, what's crazy is for a second, I bought into it. Like mm-hmm. for a second when I heard it, it was like, yeah, that's right, that's true. All of us will be in the same building. And then it's like, wait a minute, that, that burden isn't put on white people. Mm -hmm. on white women you know so why do we have why do we have to spread out Mm -hmm. yeah now i've had similar experiences when working in those white evangelical spaces when uh black people would be walking together uh have conversations about the broader culture there was this hesitation it was like well they they were pro-diversity when it comes to black people not 
congregating. Right. <laughs> but, you know, so it's just it just becomes an interesting dynamic. But uh, I think that context is helpful for the, the trajectory of our conversation. So I think um, when you look at the media right now, I thought it was apt to title it Protecting Black Boys and Girls because we see uh, an assault on black life generally. And I think centering us in these books and in these conversations is important because, once again, our experience is unique. Right. Uh, are you familiar with the uh, most recent story with the young lady, Toyin? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have a hard time even talking about it. Like, mm -hmm. it just like. Yeah. And right. the reason why I've heard a simple, I mean, there's so many stories like that, right? Mm -hmm. She's not the only one. Right. Uh, but I, I read a story once about a, a black girl, eight years old, same type of story, mm -hmm. right? Yet this was a young girl. And I I very rarely read stuff and then start crying, you know? Um, but I I read what happened to this to this young girl. Um, and so that triggered what happened with Toy and triggered like mm -hmm. just that experience when I read that article about that young black girl. I tried to Google the girl, couldn't even find it on Google, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and it was just so reflective of, you know, what happens with black women in general, when, when these things happen to black women, you can't even find it on Google, <laughs> let alone a hashtag on Twitter or whatever it might be, you know, right. and sis will go, it, it, we will hear less and less and less about her as, in the weeks to come. Mm -hmm. And that's unfortunate. Yeah. And I'll even say that it's, I think there's a variety of, variety of factors that play into this, but even when you look at the three most recent prominent cases uh, of, I guess, police or the community um, taking Black life, you know, a lot of the attention was on Ahmad and George, but then we had to do an extra push to keep Breonna's name out there. And I believe yeah. the people that killed Breonna Taylor still haven't even been arrested yet. Um, I know that... Uh, Angie Martinez and Angela Yee from New York Radio made a point to do an interview with Brianna's mother. And while I think that, that, that them highlighting that is important, it concerned me. They're like, well, why is, and I, can, I don't know what it is, but it was like, well, why is Brianna's story slipping through the cracks? Why is she not getting the same traction, I wonder? Especially when you consider the gross negligence that was tied to her case. Um, but mm. what I'm wanting to transition to is the idea of being heard. So I think in many cases, the stories of black boys and girls aren't heard and what their experience is. So I, I'm glad that us with the platforms were able to herald that message when, when in many cases they can't. Um, I know in your, in your book, you're talking about the specifics of uh, uh, black girls seeing themselves in the parables. Um, so if you could just speak to, uh, I guess the importance of representation, uh, because in many cases, you know, we know the Bible and Christianity has been, has been whitewashed. Um, so could you just speak to the significance of, uh, I guess being heard and seen generally, but then the specifics of being recognized in, uh, in a biblical context when you're, when you're studying the word of God. and, and representation Yeah. Well. I think generally, um, it's, 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 it's been fun, uh, to, to hear certain, certain girls reactions, even though the book wasn't necessarily written for young girls. Um, but the ones that have read it and understood it, mm -hmm. uh, it's been fun seeing their reactions because 
it, they've ranged from finally, I know I'm not crazy. Finally, mm -hmm. somebody, you know, is able to translate how I'm feeling or whatever it might be. So it's gone be beyond from, from being just seen because it used to just be like, we want to be seen to mm -hmm. being seen and heard and understood. Mm -hmm. um, all of those yeah. things are, are so important. That's why I think um, Michelle Obama, you know, and uh, her, her being um, in the beginning was so just like, it was all like aesthetic. Oh my God, what's her, you know, outfit gonna look like? What's her hair gonna be like? You know, yeah. now it's her persona. Now it's her representation, her talking about, hey, I'm just like y'all. Hey, you know, um, that's even more important. So, um, and it's because there's not many, <laughs> you know, like growing up, we had like Oprah, you know, like we had one or two, you know, here and there. But, um, you know, and I clung to Brandy as a singer. I clung mm -hmm. to her. Right. Because it was like, oh, finally, you know, um, and there were other black women, of course, R&B singers and things like that. Thank God. Um, but as a young black girl, it was like who looking like me was so important. And it wasn't until later in life that, you know, um, that being understood and um, being heard was was equally as important. Mm -hmm. And scripture, it is important because we have uh, for so long sort of been under the uh, scripture has been under the, the the translation, the interpretation of, of white, white Western culture, right? Mm -hmm. So even aesthetically, images that we see, those types of depictions are white and Western primarily. Mm -hmm. So even when you read into the text, those images, whether it's, you know, a, a, a Bible movie or, you know, um, paintings in a church or, you know, whatever it might be, those those are the things that, that it evokes so that imagery. Um, we have not, uh, it has not been inclusive. It's just mm -hmm. now starting to be a little bit more, you know, we have our African American study Bible, things like that. But um, it's so important for people to see themselves within the text, mm -hmm. particularly the gospels, because if you, if you, if you're a Christian or if you identify as Christian and Jesus is central to that, so many of Jesus' encounters were with the marginalized, were with the overlooked. Um, and it's it's important for young black girls and black boys, of course, to, to see themselves within the gospel story. So we have to tell those stories and those narratives um, from that. Now, Parable the Brown Girl doesn't do that explicitly. Like, you know, it's not like, and Jesus met this girl, you know, it's not that. Um, but it's it's written in a way that suggests that Jesus is, um, that, that these, these girls have a divine presence that is guiding them, that's with them, that's speaking through them. Um, so that's important um, because there's so many stories that aren't in the Bible um, of encounters that, that Jesus had with people um, that we haven't read. And there are encounters that happen even after, you know, that we haven't um, been privy to. So it's important for us to see ourselves within that context. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I appreciate you highlighting that because I think that sometimes it's, it might be presented as rivaling, but it shouldn't be. And that I think that one, uh, there is an underrepresentation of, uh, of black women, black girls in a variety of spaces. Um, and, 
that tends to have an effect on the individual, whether we realize it or not. Systemic affects the individual. Uh, and conversely, with an emphasis on, on black girls, on, on boys uh, and men, I think the, the, the way that would look for us is that, uh, like prime example, we just talked about toying. Um, although it's not where it should be, instances of sexual assault or abuse um, does have some level of attention when it comes to, to girls and boys. It's not where it should be. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't get the response that it should get. Um, but on the other end, uh, there's almost no attention to that being given to boys at mm-hmm. all. Um, and boys oftentimes don't feel the comfortability to share if they've had some experience of sexual abuse. And in many cases, yeah, it's applauded because it's like coming of age, even though they're not of age. Mm. Uh, so it's just like, and I, I never want to create this competition of who's oppressed more, but I think that once again, when you think about those things, um, they, they play out differently, but we're still, still being affected. So while I would say that I think like, like with Toyin, um, those things need to be taken more seriously and they need to be protected. And along with that, um, I think we need to normalize, uh, allowing black boys to be boys and to not be sexualized or not mm-hmm. or or debunking like one of the myths i discuss in my book is this idea of um that that manhood is just something this is a natural instinct it's just already there mm-hmm. and actuality is something you grow into and part of that does include sexuality yeah and yet we we chastise young girls for being too fast, mm-hmm. but then we push boys out way yeah. too soon. Definitely. And I actually write about uh, the hypersexualization of black girls um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> in one of the chapters. And a lot of the girls that I talked to were like, I'm just being, there's this assumed sexuality, right, right. <laughs> you know, very similar to what you just mentioned for a lot of the, a lot of the girls. And so much so that by the time they come of age where they want to explore it, they are either hesitant to mm-hmm. or they go overboard, <laughs> right? Because, well, they were they were saying that about me when I was seven and eight years old anyway. They assumed mm-hmm. this was, a, you know, um, and then the ones that, you know, are, are you know, ha- I guess hesitant um, are trying to sort of, stick with that, the social script of, of modesty, you know, um, they want to explore, they want to find out more about themselves, about their bodies, all that. Um, but this narrative has been put on them, you know, since they were young girls. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was something I think I already knew. It was just interesting hearing it with the new, this newer generation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in mine, uh, the bulk of it is addressing myths that men black men tend to believe about masculinity and manhood Mm -hmm. and myths that are believed about us that cause us to try to live up to that when it shouldn't even be aspired to to begin with Mm -hmm. what would you say are some myths or misunderstandings about black and brown girls myths Mm Well, I, I explored like loudness. I wouldn't say mm. I wouldn't say loudness. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Um, but, but the negativity associated with that with mm-hmm. that loudness. There was a hashtag 
that I write about in the book um, back in 2016, I think, or earlier that was uh, called Loud Black Girls. And someone wrote in it, um, the black girls were always will always be too loud for um, a world that never intended on hearing them. Mm. And I just, God, that just sent me chills, you know? Like I just, that is a phrase. Um, yeah. And it's like, oh, okay, perhaps, Perhaps we the, the the negativity associated with loudness. It's just our our language, our way of communicating. Not all of us, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was that. There was like I said, the the myth around this that that we're just sexual beings, you know, at young young ages, eight nine years old. Uh, mm-hmm. Teachers and adults putting that on young black girls. Um, even the anger, uh, I think angry black girl, angry black woman. That's definitely a stereotype and a myth that just, you see that with Serena Williams, you see it with, you know, and mm-hmm. um, and I, I say celebrities because you see those headlines that highlight that. And, um, and how black women and girls have a reason to be, uh, Ever, ever reason to be angry, you know, in this contentious society that we live in. It's not to say that we are or aren't, but if there, yeah. if we are, you know, um, feel like it should be justified. We're always having to mm-hmm. qualify our hair, our skin complexion, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so those no. are like three that stand out. Mm-hmm. That's and, interesting. And that's why I'm, I'm glad we're having this conversation because of how it, how it flips. So while I do know, yeah, that, and I hate that that's the case that, uh, black women and girls feel like they aren't free to be frustrated because they'll have a label put on them. But on the, on the other side mm-hmm. it is like with, with uh, black boys and men, uh, we aren't free to express or exhibit yeah. the spectrum of emotions. And the only mm-hmm. one that typically is acceptable is anger. That's the only one that, okay, well that fits a, a, a man's, uh, right. you know, persona. Wow. But the other emotions within the spectrum aren't really permissible because then somehow you'll be perceived as less than masculine. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's interesting how all of these things affect us differently and they, are, they, they aren't quite hitting the, the proper medium that they should be at, where you are uh, expected to have a level of responsibility in how you steward your emotions, mm. but also free to express them in any context because we're all human. Right. Yeah. I think what black one thing I know is with black men there's this assumed leadership too, right? Like mm. if you're just born, you know, born to take the lead, receiver. you know. Um, <laughs> just like that in relationship, you know. Yeah. Guilty, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and even without even without preparation. I I'll, I'll speak to that and that I know that you know, some will say the idea of submission is a cuss word. Uh and I do know that in many cases that in, in church spaces specifically, there's this idea of, of male headship and so on and so mm-hmm, forth mm-hmm. that ends up being assumed uh, that's there. But once again, being male doesn't grant you that that access, especially if you haven't done the work personally to leave. Um, it, it's foolish to follow a person that doesn't know where they're going just because of their gender. Right. So, yeah, I think that that plays into that same mentality that manhood is uh, a natural instinct. With mm. actuality, that's something that has to be exhibited for someone else to then trust your leadership. 
Wow. It, and I love how you say that it's flipped because um, it's not that women aren't assumed. Uh, well, not now. I think people look at women and embrace their leadership a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say that, you know, that we're not natural leaders, right? That So maybe that men are, men are natural leaders and they don't have to learn it. They just, they're, they, they're just there. And then women aren't per se. Right. Mm-hmm. And then there are some women that are just, I mean, you know, for my, for my next project, just, they, they have a leadership in them, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's seen as a threat to some yeah. people. Um, so it's so interesting to see how that, how that is, how that is flipped and how that plays out. Patriarchy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I, I'll go even further to say this. I did, I said this in a, a interview I did last week and that, um, and this might seem like uh, going super deep, but uh, one of the things I pointed out amongst men is a big theme in my in my book is is fatherhood too, and how what your father did or did not do plays has an effect on who how you show up in the world. Mm-hmm. And one of the aspects I talk about that in my last interview was how that plays out in the church, mm-hmm. in that many boys that have an absent father or a father that was present but emotionally distant um, tend to go out into the world with something to prove. And I call it spiteful success. Mm. And one of the ways that plays out in a Christian realm is men uh, finding a new opportunity to prove their value and then wanting to be at the top of the org chart or the totem pole immediately. Yeah. The way that looks in church is men immediately get in church and want to be in leadership role. What's the top of the church pastor. So a lot of people are, uh, I would say, because I've come into contact with them in a pastoral role, but not there because of calling, but they found their way there out of insecurity with something to prove. Um, Because for uh, for many of us, it's always a competition. It's always strength, power, leadership, uh, influence. When in actuality, Not everybody needs to be the pastor. Not everybody needs to be a leader. Not all men, like men can be led by women. Men can be number two or number three or number four. You don't always have to be the macho guy up at the top. And in many cases, if we don't have the conversations that unpack it, we'll we'll just keep finding ourselves in positions that we shouldn't even even be in. But once again, we're taught, well, you're a man. You got to lead this thing when... I think well, wisdom would say, <laughs> you yeah. know, get a clue first before so to know where you're leading people to. <laughs> right. Well, it's interesting to see the progression of that because it started that was the black church, right? Like the the inception of the black church or the evolving of the black church. You know, that was the space where um, black people were affirmed in their leadership in their mm-hmm. in their identity. You know, education, all of the things that took place. You know, um, civic civic responsibility and you know all of that was sort of lived out in a practical way within the black church historically and so where they weren't uh where we weren't able to um be affirmed in society we were within the the black church right right. um and so that was a good thing right uh but like you said where black men were dehumanized and demeaned outside of the walls of the church, they were able to, within the walls of the church, mm-hmm. be a part of a hierarchical structure that um, that, af- that affirmed their manhood and their being, their yeah. existence. 
And that's not um, all bad. That eventually came at the expense of, of black women. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting, you know, because it, it does, I don't want it to take away from the, the goodness of what that I think that the church provided as far as human dignity, right. Mm -hmm. um, for, for black people. But um, you see it in the civil rights movement, right? Black men structured, ordered, you know, all of that. Um, but there was still that sort of patriarchal mm -hmm. um, parallel between what was happening in society and what was happening in the church. Mm -hmm. So I guess, so to speak, guess. what what at one point served a good purpose, an integral part of character building and identity, could have potentially gone too far. Uh, you know, in the, in the present, in the present day. Yeah. That's a book. <laughs> yeah. I've yeah. written on it though. I'm like, this can't be the right. first conversation, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, but it is interesting to see, like you said, how it plays out with people, especially men. Um, you know, cause I, when I went to seminary, Hey, look, growing up, even after seminary, you know, being mm -hmm. in this, um, role as a black woman in this, mm -hmm. uh, I don't say industry, but you know, in this vocation, mm -hmm. yeah, you know, real. brothers used to run to the, you know, we go visited a church with, you know, our, our, our co colleagues and seminarian um, brothers, you know, and pastor invite them up, invite us up to the pulpit, you know, come sit in the pulpit and the brothers run to go sit in the pulpit mm -hmm. and practically stump over to us on the way there. You know, um, that happened plenty of times. We, yeah. we saw that played out, you know, um, and even with this, I, I've been rejecting this a lot lately, this, this co-pastor model, um, you know, <laughs> I gotta have my wife with me and, and she's pastor such and such. She's not called, she's not called, you know what I mean? Like not all the time. I'm not talking about this in particular, like, um, about women in particular. That's not mm. what I'm saying. I'm saying there's just this automatic. Yeah. Right. You I know, get what you're saying. You're saying that just because, be yeah, just because a man is, is called to pastor doesn't necessarily mean that his wife gets on the right <laughs> and, you, and and they wind up doing it and they call it co-pastoring and mm -hmm. it's not co-pastoring he really is the pastor and, and he's, and he's not along. even allowing her to have an equal voice <laughs> oh yeah that like, too right right yeah. it's just it's presented like that way but it's not really it's really just him yeah that's that's facts <laughs> it's presented you know? like husband wife and the congregation is the children <laughs> that, that's the extent of the co-pastoring it's not actual co-pastoring they should yeah. call it pastor and assistant pastor yeah that would be more accurate that's right yeah so my my brother is a pastor and my my sister-in-law is funny she was like don't call me co-pastor don't call me first lady i'm not none of that that's that's all him Leave me alone. <laughs> like, that's his call. You know, yeah. for her. I got much respect for her because it's that's yeah. his thing. And then in what 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 is unfortunate is that those that are called to be in this dual pastoring role as a husband and a wife, it's hard for me to take you seriously, you know, because everybody, you know, is doing that. And I, I could think of a few even right now. It's like stop trying to force your wife to be a pastor. She's not, you know, yeah. um, and, and vice versa sometimes. You know, um, and I've seen it even then. So I've been really um, if you're if you're going to say you're a co-pastor, it literally needs to be that it really mm -hmm. needs to be 50 50 split on down the middle. You mm -hmm. know, um, it, it should not take on the the image of what your your marriage looks you know what i mean how, mm -hmm. how your household is how you you know it's co-pastor but i got the final say that's not really how <laughs> that right. is so supposed to work yeah. 
Yeah. No, no, I think I'm, I'm glad you're saying that, because once again, I think it's important to provide spaces for us to, to hear these things, because I know I know there are several men who are doing that exact thing that you're talking about. <laughs> like that's that's very common. And and maybe because their wife's going along with it, they think it's all good. But it's like what you're selling is not exactly what it is. Um, so, yeah. Right. In addition, in addition to that, I, I want to ask this question and. You know, you can pose it back to me after we we, we get to it. But okay. we um something you see a lot on social right now and in general is this idea of. Uh, I see a lot of frustration. I see a lot of black women speaking about not feeling protected, whether it's girls or boys, not being protected specifically by black men. And, you know. With, with what I do uh, with the whole brother mission, there's an emphasis on men being whole in every area of life. The head, which is mental health, the heart, which is emotional maturity, and the hands, which is professional advancement. So I think to get there, a big part of that is something that seems kind of simple, but is listening uh, and heeding the wisdom of the women uh, in our community and in our lives, whether or not you're dating her, whether or not you're attracted to her. Just the voice itself stands just because regardless of how you view her. Um, so I always want to create spaces for us to, to listen, but not just listen, but to learn and then do something different. Mm -hmm. um, so so if you, you know, let's just say you have a, a room full of, of black men, students, boys, whatever the case may be. Uh, what would you say is the issue and what needs to or can be done differently? Between black men and black women? Mm-hmm. And I know that's loaded, but. <laughs> well, no, I think I, I'm thinking because I'm always, um, you know, I'm always working with high school kids. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because, like I said, I'm in a predominantly white space right now. Mm -hmm. The black girls have the biggest issue with the black boys on campus. Right. Mm -hmm. um, they feel ignored. They feel like they're always white girls. You know, they're the athlete stars that they can they can they can hide their blackness. You know, mm -hmm. um, interestingly enough, because that's not the, the national discourse outside right, right. Um, but they can sort of blend perform it's more performative whereas black mm -hmm. girls aren't aren't able to do that and if they if there are the few that are maybe more performative they're really extra you know what I mean mm -hmm. um, but the black girls just want to be in their own skin but they they want to have you know a meeting with the black boys on campus and maybe we can have a conversation and I was like they and I remember saying to the girls last year you're coming to me because you care so much about this. Until they care, they're not going to hear you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I hate—I hated to say that. Like you, you're—I—I I didn't want them to feel like they were wasting their time. But I had to be that mm -hmm. extreme. With you're coming to me, you want to put this whole event together, you know, because you guys are frustrated with the black boys and you want to have a conversation, you know. And I think that you should have one. But will they show up to that conversation? Like, mm -hmm. because a lot, it might just be you. Um, they have to get to a point where they become woke, right? Mm -hmm. To to an extent, woke to the issues that black women and girls um, mm -hmm. that 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 you all are facing, or woke to the fact that there there is some complicit, like there some complicitness, right, on in their end, and vice versa. Mm -hmm. um, it's not until that happens that, you know, until they're open to hearing mm -hmm. um, and open to having those difficult 
difficult conversations right um that it's even going to it's even going to happen it's it's a, it's a difficult uh because by difficult conversation the black girls have to be able to hear the, the difficult things that the brothers going to say to them you know um and black the the black men need to hear the difficult things and not to say that the difficult things are right either right mm-hmm. it's just saying that it's just difficult you have to be able to get in there um and 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 some of the difficult stuff is the hurt that's been caused um you know by by the other mm-hmm. and addressing some of that hurt and that pain you know um there's a lot there's a lot that's spoken but a lot that's unspoken i think between right. black men and black women Mm-hmm. And we have to get to that unspoken part and that spoken part. We have to be able to deal with the emotion behind the spoken part too. You know, sometimes it's like you know, brothers might be like, "I can't even," you know, because um, mm-hmm. she they doing too much. Um, <laughs> it you know it it could it could be that you know there's just such a there's a communication divide there's a gap there. Yeah, um, and to yeah. add to that, if you're yeah okay, to add to that, I think just from, from a guy's perspective and I, I push against this i'm trying to lead in a way of hey this is a, a more nuanced thoughtful way to engage with this but unfortunately just my contribution to that conversation would be that i think that many of us like i said only show up for women that we have a vested interest in hmm. so it has to be my mom the woman i'm dating the woman i'm married to whatever the case may be and outside of that Women just don't really matter, unfortunately. Even even amongst wow. amongst black people, it's just like, and and I can speak to this in the in the church context. I think part of it is men deal with um, keeping the flesh under the under control in terms of on a sexual level. So many to manage that end up just divorcing themselves from all female relationships and my wife is the woman in my life and mama. And that ends up being <laughs> and right. everybody, all other interactions are, are men. And that is how they protect their marriage. Wow. And while, while I, while I get that, That's I sweet. really would hope that we can get to a space where I have a, a female friend who tells me about this quite a bit. She does a lot of fundraising and so on and so forth. And what she says is because she's in a Christian space, it's difficult to even do business because Christian men have such a high barometer for protecting their marriage that they can't even meet with her to do business because they're worried about how it will look and so on. But but men don't have that problem. So men can get stuff done on the fundraising end, on the work end, because men can meet with men. But just because of her gender and and his potential uh, weakness, you can't get stuff done. So while I get the idea of prioritizing protecting your marriage, I would hope we can get to a medium where um, women aren't barred from even being heard. You know, the the conversation can't even happen. And of course, we were talking about high schoolers and I just jumped to, to married men. But it's just unfortunate that um, we tend to have very few women in our ear, some uh, for protective reasons, but others, I think... Yeah it's a misguided view of women's purpose in our lives. Uh, I would say I've been enriched thoroughly by having platonic female 
relationships Mm -hmm. where I've learned quite a bit and can even speak to you about this now from the perspective of, oh, I know how that can be on the other end. So I think we got to get past that point because we're we're missing out on your input by only choosing to hear your voice in a specific context. That's deep. That that. That women that are in proximity to us, or that we have a vested interest in, them, mm-hmm. I'm taking that with me tonight yeah. <laughs> because it's true. I, well, because I couldn't articulate what it what it what I was seeing, mm-hmm. what I've been mm-hmm. seeing, and now I see it, and that's it's so consistent. It's, yeah. I, we hear people, you see, you hear them say it, like mm-hmm. my wife, mine is all I care about, you know, right? Um, that's all that matters, or whatever. Um, yeah, I, you know, I would like to see the brothers on campus and the sisters on campus get together and have it. I would love that. Mm-hmm. I would love it. And I hate to be so pessimistic about it, but they are stuck in this predominantly white institution right. and performing the way that they know how to, that they know how to right. in order to survive or in order to get through. And the black women have to have to play by a different set of rules. Mm-hmm. And they're like, I remember the first year prom, every brother was with a white woman date every single one of them the black girls yeah only one of them had a, a brother as a date the other ones mm-hmm. all went with each other mm-hmm. so you're you're touching on something that I, I got in trouble for talking about this too much when i worked at the white evangelical schools but i, I you know like we, we talked about la dc like i'm i'm originally from southeast dc lived in maryland and then when I worked at these white schools, I was in North Carolina and Oklahoma. And then after Oklahoma, I went to L.A. Um, and I really feel like I felt out of place in those spaces as the type of black man that I was, because mm. most of the other brothers in that space all married and dating white women exclusively. And I'm not trying to knock that, but it just wasn't my thing. Um and I think that I'm glad that I was the diversity guy because I was able to disrupt that a bit. But yeah, there. I mean, we can go on about this, but it, it it's as far as black men that are either immersed in white spaces or that reach a level of prominence, we see this idea of white women becoming desirable. You know, Kanye even talked about when he get on, leave you for a white girl. So we we know that this thing exists. I don't connect with it, but I I think there's it's more than just you love who you love or you're attracted to who you're attracted to. I think it might it might be there. There's a little more to that. Yeah. She was there, you know, and because unfortunately, um, more often than not, when I see stuff like that, there's typically a story behind it. One of my friends in college, uh, black, but all his girlfriends are white. And I was like, man, you got to deal with this because this is this can't be playing out in your adulthood. But it went mm-hmm. back to a high school issue. He was the uh, he wasn't the stereotypical black guy. He wasn't mm-hmm. hood. He didn't like rap. He wasn't the thug type, even though that's what most of the black girls at his high school wanted. Right. He, play, he played acoustic guitar. So he <laughs> so he was shunned by the black girls. Mm hmm. And now in his adult life, he dates white women exclusively. And the reality is he was hurt. Um, and he yeah. never resolved that that hurt, you know? Um, so I think that 
that in and of itself is a conversation about i think protecting each other in terms of not um you know not thinking that white ice is colder and not um not this specifically in the in the seminary context not allowing a colonized or white view of biblical manhood and womanhood to affect your dating life wow I, I do think that part of that part of what happened is i came from an environment where i was raised by a single black mother uh i had my aunts were in my life you know black women that were leading I go into this white evangelical space well the man's the head of the household and in many of them they had the privilege of dad works mom stays at home mm -hmm. i come from an environment where the black women didn't have the option to just stay home and, and not right. that just wasn't a thing so i think when you go into that space your idea of how a godly woman looks begins to be altered it becomes more cultural than biblical and then you then aren't valuing mm -hmm. the sisters the way you should because they don't fit the white mold for how a godly woman looks and that's wow. that's unfortunate i think we've had like five conversations right. <laughs> no seriously because that's a whole yeah that I, I i wish we can have that that honest that that honest conversation because like you said it's more than just it's more than preference yeah and they and every single one will say oh well that's just me and it's mm -hmm. it's not, and I think nobody's telling you to, to, to divorce or or break up with your you know white woman, um, <laughs> right? You know what I mean? Like do do what you do. Mm -hmm. um, but what I, what we are saying is you need to you know that the hard work will be to dig deep in in inside, What's right? There? And what what has been internalized in order to mm -hmm. lead to that particular de decision, and it's not just proximity to to white women. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, yeah, like you said, we've had several conversations and I think once again, it all goes back to us, us understanding each other. Um, hopefully the, the white people that, that are tuning in and that will tune in aren't offended. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's kitchen, kitchen table talk. Um, right. So once again, for those that are interested, uh, Parable of the Brown Girl by Christy Lauren Adams, where can they get it? Uh, you can get it on Amazon. Uh, you can get it in Barnes and Noble. You can go into a Barnes and Noble if you have your mask on. Um, <laughs> be in there, um, and you can get it. it. Just if you just Google it, there's a few options. I mean, I saw Target and a few other places that you can order it. Um, so that's that's good. Good. And for the brothers, uh, whole brother debunking the myth to break the black families available on Amazon and. Because of COVID, I'm not out here in the streets doing uh, events like I planned on. But if you do want to sign copy uh, with a note, you can get it from wholebrothermission.com forward slash shop. Uh, and once again, uh, thank you for joining me, Christy. I think we've opened up several conversations. I'm sure we'll, we'll do it again. <laughs>